So great to be with you again this morning. You know, last week we talked about three myths. You know, really what we talked about was three lies that can harm both the married and the single among us if we live as if these myths are true. I think probably the real main idea from last week was simply this, that apart from Jesus, nobody on earth can complete us. There is no person who is going to make us whole. And you know, that myth can cause all sorts of grief and poor choices when we get um, kind of deceived into believing that that might be true. So this morning, we're gonna try and answer a big question. The question is, why marriage? Why, why did God give us this gift called marriage? Why, why did he do it? I mean, in some ways, you know, the whole Bible is in a sense built around a metaphor of marriage. You know, the Bible begins with a marriage. The Bible ends with the marriage supper of the lamb. The Israelites were really his bride. He had a covenant relationship with the Israelites and there's all sorts of imagery through the Old Testament about those people being his bride. And in the New Testament, the church is clearly the bride of Christ. And so there is this, this massive legacy of marital imagery throughout the Bible from beginning to end. So why marriage? You know, most of us probably get married without really knowing the answer to that question. I did. At 22 years old, I got married. I, I think I said this last week, but I got married believing that Anne, I was attracted to her deeply and that she would meet my needs and she would make me happy. And I was going to stand up there like I'm sure all of you did, those of you who are married, I was going to stand up there and I was going to make essentially breathtaking commitments right up until you say, I'm gonna stay in this until one of us dies. Now at 22 years old, we don't have any idea what's going to happen in 10 days or 10 weeks, let alone 10 years and beyond. And yet we have this, this, um, thing called marriage that ask us to use language of a covenant type that we speak unconditional type of promises one to another. And if you think about it, either God has something very profound that he wants us to understand and to learn both about marriage and from marriage, about the nature, the character, and the love of God, or marriage is like the dumbest thing anyone could ever do. I mean, honestly, at 22 years old, I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And to say the words that I said and to think that that is how I was going to you know, that, that I made this commitment for the rest of my life. Either God's up to something or it's nuts, right? 
So the first time I heard what I'm gonna talk about for the next half hour or so, the very first time I heard this, it was, it, it just rocked my world. It really did change me. It, it, it didn't change me overnight. My marriage didn't change overnight, but what did change about me, even from the very first conversation about this, what did change about me is the posture of my heart towards my marriage began to shift because I began to look at it through a different set of eyes. And once that happened, it began what really has become a lifelong journey of growth and change that dwells or emanates or comes out of this marriage that I've been walking in now for my whole adult life. So, you know, in 2007, there were more than 100 cars uh, backed up on a tra in a traffic jam on a bridge outside of Minneapolis over the Mississippi River. And there was also construction going on in that bridge. And so that particular day, there was just enough cars up there enough weight on that bridge that it caused the bridge to collapse. And it, there were 14 or 15 people, I believe, who died and nearly 150 who were injured. And after the collapse happened, you know, they immediately came and they did a, an engineering autopsy on this bridge. And they really wanted to understand best they could why the bridge collapsed. And what they discovered is that there were stress fractures in really important um, architectural places in this bridge that no one knew were there. And so this one day with the traffic jam on the bridge, the construction equipment on the bridge, there was enough weight that it finally collapsed. But what was really instructive, and even as I read the story was instructive to me, was that these fractures, these weaknesses were present before all the weight got on the bridge and before, I mean, it was already there. And then one day it was too much. And I, I got thinking about that over the years. That's, that's a little bit how I feel like when we get married. I, I feel like marriage in a sense became the two-ton truck that came over the bridge of my life. And it didn't take very long before the marriage itself the commitments I've made, the changes and expectations about the way Ann and I would live together once you're married, um, that the changes themselves began to reveal things that were already present in me, weaknesses in my character, um, immature places in me, places of selfishness I really didn't know very much about before I got married. Um, you know, the struggle to communicate when I was hurt or challenged. There, there were all kinds of things. And, and the fir my first instinct was not to believe that these stress fractures were present before my marriage. My first instinct was to blame Ian for what I was feeling and how I'm responding. And now, obviously, the chemistry between two people plays a role in what's going on for sure. But the truth is, and, and I have come to really believe this over the years, 
is that all that happened was the things that I brought with me into the marriage were exposed. They were just brought to the light. And it's, it's part of the reason that marriage can be such a profound experience if we'll let it be that experience. So we're gonna, so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna talk about this idea that, you know, if marriage can expose our struggles, our weaknesses, our sins, our immaturities, all of those things, and God asked us to step into it for a lifetime, what is God up to? Why would he put us in a posture like that? You remember last week, we talked for just a few moments about the Old Testament or the biblical um, culture of an arranged marriage. And we talked about the real value of that was that they understood that you didn't marry the one you loved, but you learned to love the one that you married. Well, that's really another way of saying that, you know, marriage is revealing. It's just revealing what's already present. So when I first heard this, it, again, I just was so grateful for how it changed my perspective around my marriage. So as we ponder God's purpose for marriage, I'm gonna begin by asking this question. Is marriage a contract or a covenant? Is it a contract or a covenant? And then what's the difference? You know, a contract is clearly designed to outline expectations, you know, help business part partners function or, you know, even roommates in a formalized kind of setting. A contract is primarily designed to protect ourselves, right? It, it's designed to self-protect. You know, I'm determined, you know, I want, I want to limit my liability if I run into an agreement. So we sign a contract, you know, before we have a surgical procedure to protect us and protect the doctor in the hospital. We, we sign leases, right? When, and we have landlords. So people on both sides have legal protections. When we go into business agreements or even things like a, a prenuptial or some people want to sign things before they marry somebody because there's a lot of assets to protect in the world and they're just not sure it's going to work out. And so we have these contracts and it's a good thing in the world that we have contracts. We need them. We need them for all sorts of things. However, what I would say to you is that a contract, when you think about it from a marital perspective, a contract basically allows each spouse to say that if you fail to meet my expectations or my felt needs, I'm either gonna punish you by the way I behave towards you, or I'm simply going to renege on my commitment. I'm going to end it. I'm gonna pull out. I'm gonna call off the agreement. So on the other hand, a covenant is designed around trust and really has, gosh, almost unlimited responsibility. There's no out clause. There's no provision of self-protection. And a covenant marriage is not based on stipulations and conditions. A covenant marriage requires each spouse to say, even when you fail me, I will love you. There are marriages that get beyond our ability or God's desire sometimes for us to endure. And there are abusive things that happen. And I know we said this last week, I wanted to say it again. When we talk about you know, God's ideal, we're talking about his ideal spoken into a broken world. And so sometimes our marriages with the best of intentions, I mean, no one gets married to have their marriage end in divorce. So 
Those things happen and marriages don't always thrive or survive. But God's heart, his intention in this is so clear. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that more clearly as we walk through his purpose for marriage this morning. You know, there's a lot greater risk. Matter of fact, marriage is probably one of the most profound acts of faith we ever make in our life. And the irony is for people that are not married, the thing that makes them most frightened of marriage, this covenantal commitment is really the only thing in the world that could ever have the possibility of making you safe, really known and really loved. You know, the idea of a contract and a covenant in marriage reveals itself or expresses itself really in, in two different stories that are always at work, at play in a marriage. And I, I've been talking about these for years. I, I just think it's, it's true is that every, marry, every marriage has a small story and a large story going on all the time. And sometimes they are literally battling for control in the context of our life together. You know, the small story is when we descend into what I would call contract living. You do your part and I'll do mine. We live in this 50-50 world, always measuring fairness and assessing our rights. I'll do the dishes if you run the vacuum cleaner. That's fair. The small, small story is characterized, what about by questions like, what about me? What about my needs? What about my rights? Now, is it always wrong to, to talk about those things? Absolutely not. But what happens when inside your mind, the small talk, the quiet talk inside your own head where you, you continually grow internally to constantly be measuring, constantly be keeping score, constantly be keeping track of debts that your spouse owes you. You literally become a debt collector in your home. And who wants a call from a debt collector, right? <clears throat> I think you know, I think you can sense what I'm talking about is that what becomes harmful is when the spirit of the small story begins to own your, in, your inner world. So I'll show you what, kind of in a sense what it looks like in kind of a fun way, you know, I'm gonna pour myself a cup of coffee here. You know, Eric was talking about how he changed blends. Well, here's one of the new ones. Looks good, huh? Yeah. That just makes you just wanna dive in. A new form of textured iced coffee right here. So obviously when you pour this in, you've got coffee, but you've got the elements of coffee, but it's not coffee, is it? So like, what is this? This is two things that are sharing the same space. This is what the small story yields in a marriage. Two people, eventually, they just, they share the same space. That's what happens. And that's a picture of it. So the reality is, and God knew this, is that apart from grappling with the why of marriage, apart from asking yourself, why, how, how could God 
have placed us in this relationship that really is designed around this unconditional covenant and then abandon us to it. How could that happen? Who would conceive such a thing as a lifelong unconditional covenant? But here's the thing. It's the way God came to us. So my next question is, where did the idea of covenant love come from? Where did it even originate? Human beings don't make up stuff like covenant love. No, nobody chooses to love like that. We always protect ourselves. We always look for contracts. We always look for ways that we make things so they're fair and equitable and that that's our focus around all the things that the agreements that we build. So where did the idea of covenant love come from? And I would propose to you that the very notion of an unconditional covenant love from a creator God to his creation literally was a divine initiative from God to mankind. Where else did it come from? All the other world religions of the world um, unconditional covenant, commitment, love, those kinds of things are not part of the process. So covenant love is built on the character and the nature of God. So I'm gonna just read for you and they'll be up on the screen, a few scripture passages. And these are just a handful of these descriptive terms of God coming to man. Here's the thing, when I read these, these are not passages about marriage. These are passages about the way God loves humanity, the way God through Jesus Christ has moved towards the object of his affection. So the first one, Psalm 103:11 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. You know, as we look at the new uh, pictures from the, uh, newest telescope in space, that high as the heavens far above the earth is, uh, just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? The next one, Psalm 103, uh, or it says, those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. The next one, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So even when we're stiff-arming God, even when we're pushing him away, we don't believe, we're not interested. He made his love available to us. You know, whether you're married or divorced or single or widowed or whatever circumstance that your life is in today, again, these, these passages aren't about marriage. They're about what God has done the way God has moved towards you, the way God has created this covenant expression of love towards humanity after we've failed, rejected, struggled. This is how God feels about us. Hebrews 13, five, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. These are breathtaking promises. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean, that, that is, that's a staggering passage of God's love and our security in that love. We said this last week, but it bears repeating. God pursues imperfect people with his unconditional love for a lifetime. That's what God does. God loves sinners and he pursues them. So <laughs> what is the purpose of marriage? So we know this covenant love came from God. What is the purpose of marriage? Your marriage is a living story intended to point us to God's unconditional covenant love. There are so many ways our marriage has the potential, the power, the possibility of pointing others towards Jesus. It's unbelievable. Every time, every time we repent, every time we forgive, every time we serve, every time we sacrifice, every time we uh, give up our rights, every time we address selfishness, there are so many ways that God expresses himself the gospel becomes alive in your marriage relationship by the way that you live one to another. It is an amazingly powerful reality. And so God, marriage can point to God in so many ways. You know, one kind of fun way is, you know, when, when Ann and I were earlier in our marriage and our kids were little and her dad, mom used to always host the whole family every now and then for a, you know all family vacation. And Anne has four other siblings and there was a bunch of grandkids. And so we were all in these little cabins at a state park up in Ohio one year. And there, I don't know, there were 20, 25 of us all having a gigantic super soaker squirt gun uh, fight. I mean, we we're all in this thing. Well, Anne's dad was usually right in the middle of these things, but this time he wasn't. He was taking a nap at his cabin. So Ann and I, Ann and her brothers and I, we, we went busting into the cabin like the FBI and we startled him out of his sleep. We just picked him up off the bed. We carried him outside and we tied him to a tree with a garden hose. <laughs> and now we surrounded him by, I don't know, 15 super soaker squirt guns. Now Ann's mom uh, was just diagnosed with cancer and was beginning a battle that would eventually take her life and she was thin and before we, just before we got ready to pull the triggers, Ann's mom went pushing through all the crowd of shooters and she got up to him at the tree and she did this, she covered him. Now, I didn't think about this that day that it happened, but many, many times since then, as I reflected on that moment, it was a moment where their marriage pointed me to God. Because what, when I've thought about that moment, what, I, what my eyes now see is she covered him. She was willing to take on herself all the pelting of the water and all like she, she covered him. And I, I've thought about that so many times. It was one little moment where their marriage pointed my heart to God. And there are so, so many times when your marriage can point your children to God. It get like your home. And this, see, the, when I talk about this, 
it might sound like this means you have some, some silly, ridiculous, squeaky clean, it's all great all the time house. That's absurd because the gospel can't express itself into perfection because it doesn't exist. The gospel expresses itself in failure. The gospel expresses itself in redeeming failure, in forgiveness and in joy and in sharing and in giving away. And so every time those things happen in your home and they happen lots through our mistakes, you have the chance to be shaped, formed and changed and the gospel is expressed. It is an amazing thing. Here's everybody, everybody wants a relationship with somebody who will love us unconditionally. Like we all long for that. That's why, we're, that's why we wanna run to God. But the, but the question for a lot of us is how many of us wanna become an unconditional lover? See, I would say to you that your marriage covenant, this, this crazy promise you made is one of the most effective ways for you to learn what an unconditional lover looks like. I mean, you're already committed to the concept, right? I mean, it's an amazing thing. So there's a beautiful quote from Tim Keller that I just love. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's pretty superficial. It's true. To be known and not loved, man, it's one of our greatest fears. And it's also, that's one of the most painful places to be in a marriage. But to be fully known and loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. This is where our lifelong commitment, it's like the, it's like the pointer. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a work that takes your whole life. It's always in process, always in progress. So purpose number one is our marriage was intended to tell a story and point to us to God's covenant love. So God chose marriage as an earthly, tangible picture of his unconditional commitment to us. So purpose number two, it not only points us to God's love, but it's a lifelong catalyst for transformation that moves you towards unity with God and each other. You know, a marriage covenant was designed to hold you in place, to keep you there so the work could go on. You know, it, sometimes we leave things too soon. Um, and I, it, it's the fact that it's this lifelong picture, see, it allows the large story to say things like, I will be sexually faithful even when my sexual needs are frustrated by my marriage. I'll be emotionally and sexually faithful even when my companionship needs are frustrated. I'll be faithful in my communication forgiveness even when I never wanna speak to you again because you've wounded me so deeply. I'll be faithful in sharing the work responsibilities of family life even when I can barely put one foot in front of the other I'll be faithful to my parental responsibilities even when I'm bone weary of both you and the children. 
You know, here's the thing about all, those are, some of those are very difficult things. And we don't always succeed in them. We don't. But our failure doesn't change God's love for us. It doesn't move him away. But here's what I know is true, that there is no marriage in this room or anywhere who hasn't, hasn't had to face every one of those things and who knows what else. Like there, you could write hundreds of those. There's no marriage that hasn't faced those. And so it, it is, it's just faithfulness means I keep choosing Jesus and you. And here's the thing, like we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do this. We need help that goes beyond ourselves. You know, just a little picture of what I mean by that. These, if these two tennis balls on a string, at the very top of this, you imagine this is God. This is, this is the person of God, you know, Jesus and the spirit. And we need everything that he can give us. And these two tennis balls represent each spouse. So the, the point, the goal, the hope of this is that over the course of a lifetime that you slowly each try to move your heart towards God. And as you move your heart towards God, you end up moving towards each other. This isn't, this isn't always a quick thing that happens overnight. And, and it's miraculous in the sense it's God working in us. But this is why your commitment to your relationship with Jesus matters so much to your married life. In John 14, 16 and 17, it says this. This is Jesus speaking, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I just remind all of us in the room that if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you have the promise of the spirit living in you. And what that means is there's never one minute in your life you are alone, ever. And I know, you, I know we don't feel his presence all the time. I know it feels like he's gone. I, like I, I understand that's true, but I want you in your heart and mind to, to just stop and go, this is the scriptures tell you you're never alone. He is in you. So we need to allow our marriage to teach us to reach for and trust in the Holy Spirit. Because there's just gonna be times we, we are just at the end of ourselves. We are. So my last picture of what God has done on our behalf comes from the first sentence in the uh, book of Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 14. I love this phrase. It's a wedding vow in a sense from God to us. It says, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, this is what God has done. He's chosen us. God has chosen you. He has. And then it says that you're holy. And that just means that you're set apart. So God has chosen you and set you apart for himself. This is, a, this is a promise from God to, to his children. And then it says that you're dearly loved and that word for love there is agape. It's not, you're just not my friend. You're dearly loved to the point that I will sacrifice 
what I have for you, for your best. So that, that sounds a lot like a wedding vow, doesn't it? So on August 25th, 1979, I stood there and looked at Anne and I said to her, I choose you and she chose me. And then I said, I am setting you apart from every other relationship in my life for the rest of my life, including my kids, including everyone. And Anne returned that same commitment to me. And then I said, you are not only set apart, you're dearly loved. I am promising to sacrificially love you. And I have failed thousands of times at that. But that, that is, it's like this beautiful promise God made to us is the same one we make to each other. And then the rest of that passage talks about what happens to our inner heart, our inner world putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, what that whole description for the rest of it's right down to forgiveness and unity. The rest of that passage basically describes a lifelong process of God changing our hearts and teaching us to love, to give our lives away to the person we made our commitment to. Obviously, if this was easy, we you know, could all be doing it. This has been declared so that our lives might change. So, so what? I'm gonna give you four pretty quick practical applications to think about as we bring this to a close here. The first one is that we've already talked about this, but you've made a permanent commitment. God takes no opportunity to leave or forsake you. It's how we are loved. And marriage wants to practically teach us how to live that way with God's help. And why, again, I'm so struck today by how many people are frightened of marriage because of the covenant commitment and now without the covenant commitment, it's, it's not marriage, it's a contract. The second point is you have made a lifelong commitment to growth. Like there's just never a time where you look at God and say, I'm done with this. I'm just done with this. I've grown enough. Take me or leave me. And it doesn't matter if we're 25, 45, 55, or 75. There's no, we don't, we don't stop. You know, when, I, when we got married, I grew up in a family where my humor was most appreciated with sarcasm. It just was, we did it all the time, did it to my friends. I mean, I just was, so when Ann and I got married, my humor oftentimes had tinges of sarcasm in it. And everyone around me laughed, all the people I worked with laughed, everybody loved it, but Ann never loved it. It always hurt her, it hurt her. And I would get mad at her all the time. And I would say, well, you won't let me be who I am. Everybody thinks it's great, but you. And so you will not let me be who I am because it hurts your feelings. And I literally, I argued with her for 15 years about this. For 15 years, I argued for the right to hurt her. And it, I, I finally, I stopped, I quit, I surrendered it. It was wrong. 
And see, it, it, some of us, you know, it, it takes years and years and years sometimes for us to see right, to, to do whatever we need to do. And at, on the other side of that, people are learning forbearance and patience and all sorts of things. Like this process is at work in both people all the time. It, it's, it's how it works. I mean, I could tell you lifelong commitment to growth from things in the last two weeks. Um, the next one is you've made a lifelong commitment to forgiveness. You know, next week, this is gonna be the, the center of our talk and Ann will be up here with me next week talking about the necessity of forgiveness. You know, when we withhold forgiveness as a way of life, it's, it's, you might as well imagine somebody needing an air hose to breathe and you just decide to step on it. That, that's what happens to a marriage that never or rarely experiences the grace of forgiveness and restoration. It's just like you step on somebody's air hose. The marriage can't breathe. And the last one is you're always adjusting your life toward unity. I mean, each one of these could be a whole message all by itself and certainly unity could be. But one of the things about unity being such a central truth in marriage is that sometimes unity is a very difficult place to arrive at. You know, sometimes you don't see something the same way. And it can be about a financial thing. It can be about the discipline of a child. It can be about where you wanna go on a vacation. I mean, you name it. It could be so many things. And if, if unity and oneness is one of the core things that helps a marriage mirror something or point to something that's true about God, then what does it mean for a couple that does the work, takes the time, that takes the humility, the prayer, the patience, or whatever it does, whatever it's necessary to seek unity as a principle, as a first principle in their marriage? And what I would say to you, and, and this comes from you know 43 years of doing this, is that marriage or unity is a spiritual covering from God for your marriage. It absolutely is. And I would bet you if you were to spend very much time and thinking through, back through your marriage, when you made choices where you knew that you, you, you decided to make a choice that you were not unified about, I'll bet you there's all kinds of stories in here around eventually the fallout from ignoring that principle. It, it is, unity is an amazingly powerful thing in a marriage. Well, some of us here, you know, have drifted into the small story. And the truth is everybody drifts into the small story. The, the key is not living there, not staying there. Like we all sometimes have seasons where we wander into the 50-50 bargaining world, scorekeeping, what's fair world. And it begins to impact the way we're relating to one another and even to God. <clears throat> you know, to be constantly asking that what about me question. And so here's the thing. Sometimes we keep asking things of our spouse and it seems like we hardly ever get it. We ask for things like, listen to me more, talk to me more, help me more, help with the kids more, have sex with me more often. 
Uh, when was the last time that you actually asked something of the Holy Spirit? Help me love more. Help me listen more. Renew my heart. Give me strength. Help me to forgive. I think that we'd all have far more success and satisfaction in our marriage if we start asking more of God and less of our spouse. I mean, that takes you to a whole different place. You know, part of all of our struggle, I think, in the American church in general, I think lots of Christians are really bored with their spiritual life. I think one of the reasons they're bored is because they don't experience God in their life. I would tell you that one of the places where we really miss that opportunity is the amazing work God will do in us in our marriage, our parenting, if we've got ears to hear and eyes to see, because there's always things God could be growing in us, shaping in us, challenging in us, encouraging us to do, but we, we get really stuck in the small story. And the large story is an invitation to God to enter your life to know that he's real and active and you'll experience him. So the question, you know, again, if we ask the spirit of, for more, we talk more specifically to him about these things. And here's just my question to everybody in the room. Have you ever really trusted God to change you? Like really, have you ever really trusted God to change you about any specific thing, like specific thing? My sarcasm was a specific thing. You know, kindness has been a specific thing for me. Um, selfishness. I mean, I, I could, we don't have time. I mean, I, I could go on. It's life in the large story. And Jesus, Jesus is the main character of our marriage story. He is. It's hard sometimes to believe that. So God has invited us to allow our marriage covenant to shape and change us to become more like him. That's why we're married. And we have kids too. This is why we're married. So I want to show you one more little picture is just a little illustration of what I think God's trying to do in us. So this time, well, you know what? I'm not using my coffee cup. You ruin coffee without putting it in a coffee cup. So we'll get a look here at a nice blend of coffee from our new, I don't know if this is Egyptian or what we've got here, I'm not sure. <laughs> Dude, there's a camel hair in there. Oh. <laughs> so this looks a whole lot like more co like coffee than this, right? So this is two things taking up the same space. This is a beautiful blend, but in order to make this blend, something's had to happen. The water's been boiled and the beans have been crushed. So something has happened to both elements 
in order to make this a blend. And that's really the truth about our marriage. Something happens to both of us to become one. Father, I just thank you for uh, that truth. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us, God, to learn how to love the way you love, broken as that will be, but train us, teach us, help us surrender. And Lord, let us see our marriage covenant through the eyes of your spirit. Lord, thank you that we have the grace to fail and you never leave us nor forsake us. It's an amazing thing. It's the large story. In Jesus' name, amen.